welcome once again into the Radiopedia reading room, officially the world's most popular podcast devoted entirely to the art of clairvoyance. My name is Andrew T. Leaves Dixon, and joining me, as always, master astrologer and tarot reader to the stars, it's my co-host, the great Francesco. Oh, I like that. That's a, <laughs> a title that definitely needs a cape to go with it, I think. I'll have to order it. We may have just jumped the shark, I think, with that with that, with that <laughs> intro. People who are joining us for the first time will have no idea that this is actually a radiology podcast. Uh, today's our second hostful episode. It is indeed. So you've sent me a list of seemingly random segment <laughs> titles that I haven't really been able to decipher. I'm going to go through them. Presumably most of them are just your pet goats. Oh, yes. Lots of goats <laughs> are plenty. Do you happen to know the collective term for goats? Uh, no. There's apparently quite a, a few. Some of them are boring, like herd or you know flock of goats, which just sounds completely wrong. Nah, but the, the best one is uh, tribe or trip of goats. <laughs> so uh, I think we should go for a tribe of goats episode. All right, so we've got a tribe of Gaylard goats in this episode. I'll also throw in our usual journal club update, letters, uh, our favourite segment, or what you up to. Uh, <laughs> I've got uh, a story about my recent trip to Sydney, if we need that as well, can throw that in. And then a new segment about cognitive biases in radiology that I want to try out. Oh, um, so should we, should we get into it? Let's do it. First one you have written here, Gaylard, it just simply says debacle. What does that mean? Oh, my God. So before we get into it, uh, I think I need to play you a clip from one of our earlier episodes. I think it was episode oh. two where we were talking about uh, presentations and how to give talks. So I'm just going to play you this clip now, okay? So one thing is you don't want to be the guy that insists that they have to use their own laptop because part of your responsibility as a speaker is to make sure the whole day works well. And that means fitting in with the organizers and fitting in with the time that's given to you. I don't insist on using my laptop. <laughs> so no prizes for guessing that very recently I was that guy. Yeah, you were the guy. What did you do? Uh, this was at ANZ SNR, so the Australian New Zealand Society of Neuroradiology. Uh, they had their annual conference uh, here in, in Victoria. And I was browbeaten into saying yes to giving a talk. In fact, I got you out of it because initially it was going to be a Radiopedia whole day workshop event that they wanted us to do. So I talked them down to just me showing some cases. And my idea for this was it was going to be, and it was on the first day of the conference, and it was going to be when there were a few people around and it was going to be a small, intimate, almost like a tutorial where uh, I wouldn't do too much preparation for it and preferably with cocktails. And uh, the, the whole thing, before I knew it, it ended up being a three-hour workshop, just me doing cases. So I was essentially the whole session. <laughs> and you know how we do our workshops or we use Radiopedia playlists and we use a bunch of other stuff. So I had it all set up on my laptop and I did all the correct things that I say you have to do as a speaker. I contacted the venue and I checked that using my own laptop would be okay. I checked that I was going to use my MacBook and that that would be okay. I turned up early. I'd already found out what the aspect ratio of the projector was, all that sort of stuff. I turned up 45 minutes early and it turned out that Mac is this 
very unusual, not well-known company. And the HDMI cable was, you know, non-Mac compliant. Mate, we've never heard of Mac. Yeah, it's not like doctors use Apple products at all, right? (laughs) So we spent 45 minutes trying all sorts of workarounds. So at the end, I ended up next to the AV guy at the back of the room, looking at the back of people's heads for all three hours, sitting sort of half twisted. Their lapel mic didn't work for the first half. So I needed to hold like a karaoke mic in one hand. (laughs) And, And the thing that I found particularly difficult was, one, the way that I had thought about these cases and thought about the session was that it was going to be interactive. And you cannot do interaction when not being able to see people's faces. But the other thing that was really tough, when you're giving a talk, a lot of the energy that you bring to the talk comes from identifying a few people in the audience that are looking at you and are clearly engaged and clearly getting it. You don't look at the people that are on their phone or snoozing or looking bored. You look at the people that are engaged and that reflects on you and you can then, you know, get put more energy into the talk. Yeah. So I found the whole thing very, very tiring. And there was an intermission. And as I was getting a coffee uh, and a Negroni, uh, People were saying that actually it was quite good because I wasn't distracting them from the front of the room, which I'm not sure that's a mixed blessing. But then we started up and and sort of had a bit of a joke. And someone from the front audience said, "Uh, I find it ironic that you are using your own laptop because in your podcast, episode two, you specifically said. (laughs) (laughs) They got you. Yes, in public. And it was fair enough. I'm not doing that again, I don't think. I'd have to really have my arm twisted to say yes to this. Even though sometimes the energy you're feeling is quite low, in my experience, people do really still enjoy those workshops. They just don't feel that they can necessarily speak up at the time. And they often do come to you in the breaks and go, oh, that's really good. It's really, I'm really enjoying it. And you're like, oh, I wish you'd just show some of that energy during the actual workshop. The thing I'm most amazed by is that you managed to bring an audio clip along to the podcast, Frank. (laughs) It's almost as if you're like a real co-host. Oh, don't get any uh, illusions there. (laughs) But I've actually, uh, believe it or not, brought a second audio clip for you today. Look at you. What a hero. Do you remember you are... We spoke about AI creating scripts and podcasts for us and that we wouldn't oh, yeah. need to actually turn up anymore. I went off and I did a little bit. It's on the list here, isn't it, somewhere? Which which of these things on the list is it? Let me guess. Is it the, <laughs> uh, is it the one called Handsome and Charming? Yeah, that's the one. And it's not about you. <laughs> Before you play it, could we just explain for people? So this is, you've, you've basically written this with ChatGPT. You've got ChatGPT to yep. write it and then you yep. place the text. AI text-to-speech generator where you can All give right. different voices. Yeah, here we go. All right, let's, yeah, you play it, mate. Welcome to the Radiopedia Reading Room. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here with my co-host, Frank. Sounds like me. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. <laughs> so, Frank, I've got a me question for you today. A meat? Shoot. I love talking about meat. <laughs> if you were a cut of meat, what would you be? Wow, Andrew, that's a tough one. I guess I'd have to say I'd be a prime rib. Oh, fancy. Well, you know me. I like to keep it classy. Speaking of classy, have you tried the new meat-flavored cocktail? (sighs) No, I can't say I have. Yeah, apparently it's called a Bloody Meaty Mary. (sighs) Man, that's a terrible joke. Hey, I'm just trying to beef up our humor game. I think I'll stick to my Negronis. (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. 
Meet and Negronis, the keys to a successful life. You got that right, Andrew. <laughs> so are we out of a job, Dixon? <laughs> I love that bit where AI Frank sighs. He's like, ugh. No, I can't say I have. <laughs> that sounded just <laughs> sounded just like you. <laughs> the sigh. Can you guess the prompt that I put in? Uh, well, obviously you said that you were handsome and charming. That really came through. Slightly sleazy <laughs> as well, um, and that you like to drink Negronis. Although I, it struggled with the plural of Negroni, didn't it? Unless I'm wrong. Maybe it is one Negroni and two Negronis. <laughs> Negronis. <laughs> you told it to chat about meat, obviously. Yep. Um, and then for me, it sounded like, I don't know, lame jokes, likes to tell lame jokes or something. Yeah, I told it uh, that you liked dad jokes. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, so do you, do you think AI is, is closer to taking the jobs of podcast hosts or radiologists, which are you more <laughs> concerned about? I find it fascinating that I, I suppose that this is true of every profession, that like radiologists are like really worried about radiologists jobs being taken by AI. Mm -hmm. I was trying to think of an analogy for why I find this a, a strange way of worrying about the issue. And the best I can come up with is imagine you're at a, at a cocktail party or something and you're speaking to a guy um, and during the party it's announced that an asteroid is heading towards Earth and it's not clear yet whether it's going to just miss Earth or it's going to hit the Earth. And this guy happens to be a beekeeper and he says, oh, that asteroid thing, that's really worrying. It'll do terrible things to bees. And it's like, yeah, it would do terrible things to bees. But you know what? Along with the bees, everyone else is going to be super affected, right? And if it misses, well, the bees are fine along with everyone else. And, and I think radiologists' concern about the impact of AI is sort of similar in that if AI is going to occur so quickly and so profoundly that it genuinely means that radiologists are out of a job in the next 10 to 20 years, mm -hmm. then radiologists being out of a job is probably the least of our problems because enormous parts of society are going to have to change dramatically. And this isn't even talking about the, you know, paperclip or grey goo scenarios of badly aligned, malevolent AI, just mm. profound social change. And I am worried about the impact of AI globally to a degree. And I think radiology will be affected, but I think it's very unlikely that just radiology will be affected and everyone else will be fine. So I don't know. How do you feel about the whole AI risk versus radiology specific issue? I think it's interesting the way things have changed in the last few years because radiology was seen as an area that was going to be an obvious win for AI and maybe, you know, something like self-driving cars. And then you realize that actually AI at the moment is really good for tasks where it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to mimic, you know, kind of what a human would do. Whereas in radiology and self-drive cars, you actually need to mimic perfectly. So I actually see it as jobs at the moment where you're doing something where you don't actually have to be 100% precise. Those are the jobs that are more likely to be done by AI in the near future. Actually, our job, I think, is quite difficult for AI to do just because of that you know, degree of certainty. From a legislative point of view, AI needs to outperform mm -hmm. the best of humans. There's no way that a self-driving car algorithm 
that performs as badly as humans do would ever pass. I mean, in Australia, we still have about a thousand roadside fatalities a year. If Tesla said, hey, our new self-driving car will only kill a thousand people a year, there's there's no way that it would ever get across. And yet humans are allowed to drive. Yeah, so yeah. The, the baseline that they need to achieve is far higher. And the same thing is true for radiology. Now, I, I don't want to bring us back to talking about meat, but I kind of have to, because did you see that story during the week about the mammoth meatballs? Oh, yes, of course. It's even Australian. Uh, I thought you didn't listen to the news, but you, but this one, this one got to you. I'm completely tuned in to all meat-related <laughs> news. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so for those who didn't see it, so there's an Australian company called, uh, what is it, Val, who used some DNA techniques to get some DNA from a mammoth. Like a woolly mammoth, extinct. <laughs> yeah, an extinct species. And then they <laughs> combined it with some elephant DNA, I think, to fill in the missing blocks, just like mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. Yep. Um, they, life will find a way. And then they've made meat out of it, lab-grown meat, like we were talking about mm. in previous episodes, and then they've created this meatball and put it on display, I think, in the Netherlands or something. So I think, I mean, one, I think it's a really interesting area of uh, research and change and one that I support wholeheartedly because I, I do think eating meat from animals is terrible. But the thing that's interesting about this is um, that creating meats that don't exist, like from animals that don't actually exist, means that you're also cutting the Uh, psychological relationship between meat coming from an animal that you can identify and see and moving it more towards a a sort of abstract idea of meat, uh, which is probably a good thing. If we stop being used to killing animals to cut off their meat to eat it, uh, it's easier to do if you can't even picture the animal. Although in this case, I can picture a woolly mammoth. One interesting thing that I saw in the article about this is that they said that no one has actually tasted the meat. The protein hasn't existed for 10,000 years and they can't confirm humans wouldn't be allergic to it or something like that. But that sounds like just them covering covering themselves. I'm sure plenty of the guys involved would have had a little taste of that mammoth meatball. I think you wouldn't be able to resist, would you? Yeah, I mean, the risk would be minuscule, wouldn't it? But the benefits, whew. I was the first person to eat woolly mammoth. Oh, but imagine now there's a uh, a new strain of kuru coming from woolly mammoth experiment. This could be the plot of some bad sci-fi where zombies crave mammoth meat. <laughs> uh, we should get back uh, into some radiology-themed discussion, uh, I think. Right. So how about we do my new cognitive bias? Yes, segment? okay. All right, so... I'm sure most of you will be aware that um, there are a whole bunch of cognitive biases that can lead us astray as radiologists. Um, And I was thinking of doing a whole podcast episode on this, but the more you dig into it, the more you realize there's a whole whole lot of them. (laughs) So I thought I'd just choose one to chat about during this hostful. And then if people enjoy it, we can, you know, maybe have it as a recurring segment and just slowly run through lots of different Mm -hmm. cognitive biases. Sounds good. I also thought I'd put you on the spot a bit, Gaylord. Uh Uh-huh. Sorry, I should call you Francesco the Great. Um, <laughs> so I'll um, I'll name the bias and then I'll see if you can guess the definition. Okay. For the first one I've chosen, I, I used a scientific technique called going to the Radiopedia article and finding the first one that was listed <laughs> and it's in alphabetical order. So, oh, okay. so the, the cognitive bias that we're covering this episode is alliterative bias. What do you think that is? Uh, alliteration is where you match the first letter. So... Uh... 
I haven't heard of that one. Is it like you're more likely to say that a, a colon mass is colorectal carcinoma because it alliterates <laughs> rather than colorectal lymphoma? That sounds yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. weak. <laughs> yeah, it's more likely to be multiple myeloma, malignant <laughs> mesothelioma, choroplexus papilloma. Um, no, it's not. It's not related to to that form of alliteration. It's more related to the form of alliteration where you just keep repeating something you've previously heard. Ah, that should be perseveration, shouldn't it? It should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. So I'll read out the definition that we have on our website. Um, so alliterative bias, sometimes called satisfaction of report, is the tendency for your diagnostic impression to be unduly influenced by the prior interpretation made by another radiologist or clinician. It's a type of confirmation bias and it can result in the same incorrect impression being propagated from one radiologist to the next. Mm-hmm. That definitely happens. I would have thought that was a anchoring bias. I don't know if that's been described in radiology specifically, but you know it's used for, like, let's say you go into a jewellery shop. Have you noticed how the first mm-hmm. piece of jewellery that has a price on it is always the most expensive one that's right uh-huh. in the centre? Right. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah, walk yeah. in and there's a $120,000 ring. And so you get that price in your head and then everything else looks cheap compared to it. Yeah. Uh, because you've anchored that value. And, and there's lots of research showing on um, like jelly bean counting. If you have a jar of jelly beans, mm-hmm. the one that I remember reading about is this big jar of jelly beans and you have to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar. And yeah. next to it is a wheel of fortune sort of spinny wheel thing with random numbers written on it. And before you guess the jelly beans, you have to spin the wheel of fortune, which is clearly unrelated to how many beans there are. But the number that you spin on the Wheel of Fortune influences <laughs> the number of beans that you guess. And so, it, and that's where you know that it's unrelated. Yeah. And clearly, when you've got a previous report that has a particular diagnosis or an impression, that gets really hard to unanchor from yeah. that. Yeah. You know, one way to avoid the alliterative bias is to look at all the images, formulate your own impression first before you look maybe at the clinical history or at the previous reports. Our website makes a bit of distinction between alliterative uh, and the anchoring bias. The anchoring bias is more your anchoring to your very first opinion that you form. Right. So so when you open the case and you see multiple enhancing lesions, you go, oh, metastases, sweet, all right, and you go to the, and you never reconsider the diagnosis because the Ah, first thing you thought of was metastases rather than the alliterative bias, which is actually somebody else's opinion, which is coming through. So I guess, you know, when you see, when you see the really expensive ring, that's the first thing you think of, you go, oh, these yeah. rings are really expensive. And then you see the cheaper ones and you go, oh, that's good value. That one there. Yeah. That's an important distinction. Yeah. The other thing that I've noticed with, which I guess is part of this, maybe it's a separate bias, but it's creeping certainty across multiple reports. So you have the first report that says something like, uh, features are nonspecific, could be metastasis, could be meningioma. Uh, meningioma is favoured. The next one says, you know, features are similar with uh, meningioma favoured over metastases. The third one is appearances are similar, uh, consistent with a meningioma. And by the time you get to the fifth one, it's like known history of meningioma. and <laughs> No one's ever actually biopsied or checked it. It's just over time people fixate on one diagnosis and the referrers do this too. That's probably a different bias. I'm not sure it's even a bias, just a thing, a phenomenon. 
Gaylard's phenomenon. <laughs> One thing I've noticed with cognitive biases is that it seems like, you know, you could just make up an infinite number of cognitive biases and all of they all kind of overlap and often it's the same bias just in a slightly yeah. different context. So there must be a cognitive bias that we use that thinks that <laughs> what we've uncovered is a new cognitive bias when really it's just the same one rehashed. Um, anyway, well, we might, we might come back to some more in the future because I think they're, they're a bit of fun to think about how you can maybe try and avoid them in your clinical yeah. practice. Yeah. All right, shall we move on to a bit of journal club, Gaylard? Yes, all right. I know you have um, you have one to chat about, but I wanted to quickly chat about a paper that you co-authored last month in Radiology mm-hmm. Artificial Intelligence. We're back to AI again. Mm-hmm. I only wanted to talk about it because I thought the result was a little bit contrary to what you kind of might expect. I mean, you were involved, so you'll know more about it. But uh, the idea of this study was to look at how AI is presented to uh, the user interface and how it's presented to the radiologists yeah. when they're reporting. I think they used uh, lung nodules on chest X-ray. Some of the chest X-rays had lung nodules that were proven with CT. Other ones had no lung nodules and proven that they didn't have them with CT. And then the radiologist was looking at these blinded and they did it without any AI assistance. Then they did it with AI assistance and that came in a few different forms. Uh, one of them was simply just a, a text which would say, I'm, I'm guessing something like, you know, nodule in the right lower lobe is suspected. Um, one of them had the text plus a confidence score. So, you know, 90% confidence that there's a nodule in the right lower zone. And the third level of AI assistance would have those two things plus an actual heat map to highlight where it thinks the nodule is. Uh, And interestingly, I think the radiologists preferred having the greater amount of assistance, but in terms of their actual performance, their performance was best only if they received the text input from the AI. So if it just said, I think there might be a nodule in the right lower zone, it was actually statistically better performance from the radiologist. Is that right, Galen? Yeah, so look, I was involved in this as uh, the progenitor of the general idea and then I took a back seat and uh, mostly because it was chest related and I didn't really want to sit through reading lots of chest x-rays. But (laughs) I think the idea of focusing on how we present information has been not explored as much as it should be and Mm -hmm. the effect size of how you present the information uh, that an AI generates or any information is is really important. The same information presented in different ways can lead you to trust it or not trust it and to sway you more or less. And, and I'm pretty sure that you could probably show an effect size by simply changing the font. If you showed the same certainty <laughs> in Comic Sans, it probably has an effect compared to a trustworthy font like yeah, yeah. Arial or Helvetica. Um, So the idea was to explore that. You know, it's not a study without its uh, limitations. But what it definitely shows is that how you present things has an effect. And that we shouldn't necessarily default to showing the heat maps. Also, we should make sure that when journals report on AIs, how they perform, that Mm -hmm. the way that it's presented to the end user should be shown explicitly so that it can be reproduced because otherwise you might find that there are significant differences with the same program um, which are not actually due to the program but due to the human's interpretation or use of it. I think this is kind of like similar to that idea that you can't unsee something you know when someone like a registrar might point something out Mm -hmm. and you didn't spot it and then once they've 
they've pointed out you can't i can't really unsee that now i don't think it's anything but i can't not mention it and that's probably what's happening i think with that you know when you've got an ai that just says possibly a nodule in the right lower zone you have a look no, I can't see one. And you actually perform better in that situation than if yeah. it actually highlights an area. And then once it highlights it, you go, oh, yeah, okay, maybe I can see that. Yeah, okay, all right. Yep, okay, there's a nodule. Yeah, that could be it. There's a cognitive bias there, Daylard, <laughs> to explore. Maybe we can rename one. <laughs> it's hard to prove a negative, right? So if you've drawn yeah. something around it, yeah. uh, how sure do you have to be before you confidently say it's not Absolutely. there? Absolutely, yeah. They can't unsee bias. <laughs> um, and now, Frank, you've got uh, you've got an article that you brought along to Journal Club as well about the newly discovered fourth layer of the meninges. Well, you know, it's uh, I think it hasn't been shown in humans yet. It's in rats or rodents, but mm-hmm. um, I think it doesn't happen all the time that you get an entirely twenty five percent, no, thirty three percent more dural layers than before. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the name of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, you know, we're used to dura arachnoid and pia as the three layers uh Mm -hmm. there is a recent study by now there's two letters here with with symbols or accents that i don't know how to pronounce so molgard yeah molgard the great molgard the great (laughs) um describe a fourth meningeal layer that is very thin it's within the subarachnoid space if you want closely Mm -hmm. applied to the venous to the external side and it's been called the subarachnoid lymphatic like membrane or <laughs> slime for short. S L Y M. I love it. And then in every picture in the article, they color it green to look yeah, like slime. So I love perfect that. Perfect green colored <laughs> slime. And it remains a little bit controversial. I think there have been um, criticisms saying that it might not actually exist and it's artifactual. So I'm not sure how it will all play out. Uh, but if it's true, it sounds like it divides the subarachnoid space into a superficial and a deep compartment by a semi-permeable layer, this slime uh, layer, that only permits very small molecules through. Mm-hmm. And it's likely that it'll be yet another complicating factor in our evolving understanding of the glymphatic pathway, mm-hmm. the pathway whereby uh, fluid that exits uh, the microcirculation in the brain and form CSF then re-enters the brain via the perivascular spaces and then somehow, and this remains controversial, ends up going back into the circulation, into venous end at some point, maybe, uh, and in so doing washes away semi-soluble extracellular proteins like amyloid precursor protein and therefore disruption of the lymphatic pathway can lead to Alzheimer's and also chronic head trauma, uh, encephalopathy, mm-hmm. etc. And so when you look at the electron micrograph of this new slime layer, it's it's ridiculously thin. It's like a couple of cells thick, right? Yeah. And so you can imagine that repeated head trauma could cause repeated microtrauma to this layer, and that could have effects about how you clear these uh, different proteins. You also wonder about the effect of a craniotomy on these yeah. physiological effects, yeah, you know, or a subarachnoid hemorrhage or all of these. So I thought it was interesting because we have this idea that anatomy is kind of fixed and that everything was worked out and described yeah. uh, centuries ago. But you can find an extra layer of the meninges if you look hard enough. So well done, Molgard et al. And perhaps yet another reason not to let a neurosurgeon get into your brain. (laughs) As if you needed more. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to letters and questions. Should we do that? 
I've got a jingle. It's letters. It's letters. It's questions. No. All right. Uh, now, uh, first one, this is uh, from Cake Smoke on Podcast Attic, five-star review. Uh, like their other educational material, the Radiopedia podcast is exactly the right combination of entertainment and education. This is the only radiology podcast that is actually listenable in a car. Others that might have educational value, I simply find too boring in an audio-only format. So thank you very much. Cake smoke. That's what we're aiming for. Do you think that uh, review is specific to listening in a car? Are radiology podcasts listenable in other contexts? No, only in cars. No, only I don't, in cars. I don't know. <laughs> uh, another one. This is from Zach, a radiology registrar in Brisbane. Just wanted to share that my girlfriend, who is not radiology at all, she's an ENT resident, has taken to listening to your podcast even without me. She really enjoys the comedic stylings of Andrew and the interplay with Frank, who she thinks is the perfect straight man of the comedy <laughs> duo. You're the straight man, Gaylord. Mm-hmm. Zach's wife, she can she can be the official Brisbane Zach's wife of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, um, I got my mum to listen to the podcast. Well, I told my mum that we had started a podcast. Mum, I'm on a podcast. Please listen. And she's, uh, she's forever supportive and amazing. And so she said, oh, I want to listen to it. So she did. And uh, I was talking to her about it and she said, oh, it's very good. It's clearly good cop, bad cop. (laughs) And I looked at her and said, "Uh, who's good cop? And she looked at me like I was a complete and utter idiot. And she said, of course, Andrew's the good cop. (laughs) (laughs) I I think maybe I am the bad cop. But, but you're the naughty criminal that I'm interrogating <laughs> each week. So do you think my mum can be the official mother of the podcast? Ah, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Has your mother listened? <laughs> uh, no, not, I don't oh, think so. Well. I can ask her. I, I don't think it's going to be her cup of tea, though. <laughs> Reading out this feedback and reviews makes me think of a little thing that my daughter said to me the other day in the car. Hmm. She said, Dad, words can't describe how beautiful you are. I was like, oh, that's, lo- that's, that's lovely. And then she said, but numbers can, two out of ten. <laughs> wow, so, she is going to be so much trouble. That was, that was great. Uh, we've got questions as well, Gaylord. You've got time for some questions. So yep. okay. this one from, from Michael, he said, if you could eliminate one part of your day-to-day work as a radiologist, what would you choose? You mean aside from all the work stuff that happens between arriving and going home? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. If only part of that, protocoling MRIs. I yeah. don't know how it works at your hospital, but at Royal Melbourne, we have this um, strangely paternalistic view of protocoling MRIs where it's really complicated and only radiologists and trainees can do it because you have to get the right protocol out of, I don't know how many we have, like 200, 500. We have a lot one for each mm-hmm. possible condition. And I don't know, like MR, other than increasing your recall rate a bit, sprinkle some sequences that most of the time you'll get the answer. Uh, and the, the tediousness of going through that is just awful. At the Alfred, we protocol all of the inpatient and emergency yep. requests, but all of the outpatient MRI requests get protocoled by the radiographers. Yes. And only, only ones where they have a question do they flag it with us and often the question will be related to billings um or you know am i doing it more targeted at this or targeted at that um but yeah the vast majority of outpatient mri studies are radiographer protocol and they do a far better job than i could do with the vast majority of them 
Right, and the vast majority of them, th- there's no subtlety or clinical no, judgment routine. required. Yep. It's, you know, follow-up of yep. a glioma. Correct. Uh, another question is so in response to last week's episode, Frank, uh, we have a mm. question. Have you got a favorite productivity hack? So there's one that is easier to do at home for me anyway than at work, and that is compartmentalizing your physical environment to particular tasks. So at home, I've got an office, which is where I am now. And the only thing I do in my office is work. So the moment I come into this room, um, I don't have any computer games on my computer. I, there's a guitar in the background, but realistically that's mostly a prop these days. (laughs) Um, and that's all that I do. I come in here. And so the moment I step into this room, I'm in a work frame of mind at work. It's much harder because my office, I do some reporting in my office, but also do admin and I also muck around for 10 minutes having a coffee, watching YouTube mm-hmm. clips. Or when reporting in the reporting room, similarly, you are sometimes reporting, you're sometimes checking your email, you're sometimes talking to people. And so it's much harder to enter that one task uh, frame of mind. Mm-hmm. And I would love to, at work, to really stop doing anything other than reporting in the in the reading room and get up and go to my office to do everything else uh but i share my office so that's no longer possible unfortunately what about you do you have one just to summarize your hack is to own a mansion and have one separate room for every little task that you every activity should have (laughs) one different room (laughs) and a butler in each My productivity hack is not really a productivity hack that's particularly uh, relatable to most people, but it's to have people like Juliet and Murph uh, running things in the background. Um, oh, so they're, they're two, amazing. Yes. Two people who work for us at Radiopedia um, and, and take care of a whole lot of things. Murph will be dealing with some of this podcast. Hi, Murph. How are you doing? Good luck with the edit. Um, so, yeah, that's my hack. Get people to help you. Yeah. Well, it's time to finish off with um, our favourite segment Gaylord called what you up to (laughs) (laughs) what am i up to all right yeah what are you up to the past few weeks and the next couple of weeks are very heavily uh centered around onboarding a couple of new developers for radiopedia we've had Mm -hmm. uh some staffing changes and we've got two new developers starting up uh which is great but it always takes an inordinate amount of time not just to get set up but the code base of radiopedia is some parts of it date back over 10 years, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's a complicated code base. And before a new developer can meaningfully contribute to sizable feature stories rather than just little tweaks here and there, they really need to not just understand the code, but they also need to understand how the website is meant to work from a user point of view. And that takes hours and hours and weeks and weeks and really probably months before that's the case. And you can short circuit that a lot by sitting with them and showing them how does an editor use the site? How does a contributor use the site? What is this thing we call a radiology case? Because a lot of them have never seen Mm. anything except an upside down x-ray on a TV show. So (laughs) that's what I'm up to. What about you? I recorded my talk for the ASNR, so the American Society of Neuroradiology Conference, mm-hmm. recorded that uh, last week. So I've been working on that. I've got multiple talks to record for our conference, Radio Peer 2023, mm-hmm. which is coming up in July. People should register. Yes. But 
I feel like I need to tell my Sydney story. Oh, you have a um, Sydney story. Have we got time? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what I've been up to in the last few weeks. So, and when I told my, the, well, the wife of the podcast, when I told her that I might tell the Sydney story on the podcast, she said, oh, that's not very relatable. And then <laughs> when I thought about it, I thought, well, it's only not relatable because of what she did, not because of what <laughs> I did. So, so I'm going to tell it. <laughs> All right, go. We go to Sydney for uh, the weekend. Kids are back home in Melbourne. We don't get away from the kids very often, so it's a bit of a bit of a party vibe uh, already. And Belinda likes to pack things in. She likes to have a very organised <laughs> schedule while we're away. Um, so she organises us to go to the opera, oh. and the opera is on Sydney Harbour. It's not in the Opera House. This is like one of the ones that's outdoors. So you've oh. got a view of the Opera House. You've got a view of the Sydney Harbour Bridge beautiful it's a warm day humid as sydney often is um, well, what so, opera um, was it the official mother of the podcast will want to know since that's her area madam butterfly and she's gonna oh, love that so it's yes, gonna no, be one of her like favorites yep. uh so yeah so madam butterfly on the water in sydney nice warm day so i'm like oh, okay right um it's hot. I'm wearing a T-shirt, right? It's outdoors. It can't be too formal, right? So we get there a little bit early. We're lining up and I'm, I'm looking and there's a few people fairly casually dressed, but the majority are pretty, pretty well dressed, right? There's a lot of black ties hanging around. Oh, really? And then my wife goes, oh, it's actually opening night. I forgot to tell you it's opening night. Oh. Okay. And I look at my wife and she's dressed up beautifully as well. And so I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a bit odd in my T-shirt. You get there a couple of hours early because they have all these food trucks set up so you can get dinner first and then sit down and watch the opera and then my wife's like oh i thought it would be really busy so instead of going to the food trucks i actually booked us in to a set dinner i was like oh cool all right so we walk in total opposite direction to the majority of people in fact where we're walking in looks like the black tie people um (laughs) and so we get to this door and it says platinum club or something and i'm like oh that seems odd i'm sure this isn't the right place anyway our name's on the list (laughs) So we so we go in. It's very exclusive. There's literally like 20 or 30 people in this place. Opening night, black tie. I'm wearing a T-shirt. We sit down, have an amazing three-course meal, all the drinks that you could possibly want. Everything's all taken care of. I don't know what my wife paid, but it was probably too much. Um, and then uh, someone walks past me, and it's um, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. He oh, walks past. there you go. Uh-huh. Was he wearing a T-shirt? No, no, he was black tie, that guy. <laughs> Speedos, below, but black tie up top. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, Scott Morrison, another former Prime oh, Minister right. of Australia, walks past. And then a few minutes later, another Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, walks past, not sitting with the other two. They're slightly yep. differently aligned within, even yes. though they're within the same political party. So there I am with, you know, in a room, only 30 or so people wearing a T-shirt with three former Prime Ministers. And for those listening overseas, you know, this is the equivalent to the president in the United States. Um, so I've got three prime ministers in the room. There I am in a T-shirt. And so when the performance starts, they actually, like, they ring the bell. Everyone's sitting there in the stands ready for the opera, but not us. We come in as dignitaries at the last minute. <laughs> so, we, so, so we get paraded out uh, with these former prime ministers. I'm literally right behind, you know, Scott Morrison. And then someone in the crowd sees him and starts booing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, my wife and I have had a few drinks by this stage and my wife, my wife goes, yeah, boo, <laughs> does a bit of a boo as well. And then anyway, we sit down, we watch the opera, we go back in at, at the intermission, back into this room, even though I don't think we were technically supposed to go back in yeah. there. So we have more drinks with these fancy people. 
Uh, but my favorite part of this story, and this just shows how organized my wife is. So at the end, you're out on this point. It's quite isolated in Sydney and everyone needs to get back home at the end, right? And so there's all this, it's really hard to get transport. Yep. Opera Australia books all these um, water taxis so yep. people can get a water taxi. But there's a massive queue for these water taxis. So these people dressed up to the nines waiting for their water taxis. And my wife's like, oh, I actually, uh, I actually booked us our own. Um, private charter <laughs> and so and she calls up this guy and he says oh yeah just when you get to the top of the stairs wave right and I'm like oh, we can't really cut in front of all these people so I get to the top of the stairs and I wave and this boat just sweeps in it's twice the size of any of the water taxis <laughs> it just sweeps in does a little and then and then we just cut past all these people my wife's like oh that's our boat there sorry sorry that's our boat there we jump on this boat and we just it's just the two of us in the back of this fancy boat what do you mean there weren't any ex-prime ministers with you no nah, it was just <laughs> our boat on our own and we just cruise off into the night get some photo photos in front of the opera house it was amazing how relatable is that though i can't believe <laughs> you just gave me grief about having a study at home <laughs> you know what this is though this is what happens when you spend six months, 12 months at home with the kids, yeah. don't go away on holidays at all. And so when you do get a weekend away, we were there for a, 40, a friend's 40th birthday. When you do get away, you just, you you just pack things up and you live it up. And, but, um, but three former prime ministers in one night. That. So the other thing that's struck me as interesting was if I was put in that situation, I think there's a reasonable chance that I wouldn't recognize any of the three. Because <laughs> as you were mentioning their names, like I recognize their names, but I'm struggling to picture them given my self-imposed news isolation. Oh, well, that's good. Their images are burnt into my retina. <laughs> and I would have thought they were booing me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. That's my Sydney story. So we'll finish Maybe. off. Uh, how can people get in contact with us, Frank? Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback, particularly on our cognitive bias segments and any questions you might have for the next hostful. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that if you want to support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and our upcoming July Radiopedia 2023 conference. Oh, plenty of great lectures coming in from our speakers for that at the moment. Yeah. So it's going to be amazing. So if you haven't registered yet, hop to it. And the, the thing to also remember there is that you're not only registering for yourself, but for those of you who are in high income regions, the registration allows us to make it free to everyone in low and middle income countries. And that's over half of all countries, 125. And 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 what else can people do to help out, Frank? And, of course, you can also help out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. That's the end of the host. Was it good for you, Frank? It was very good. It was very good. Uh, big very episode good. next week, actually. I've got a, a readful episode with a, a superstar radiologist. Ah, excellent. It was really, looking forward really to fun it. to record. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing that with everyone. So let's let's get out of here. Uh, I'll, uh, uh, I'll read my little... <laughs> <laughs> My little outro thing, what do I say? <laughs> and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Over to you, friend. Stay right, everyone. Stay Ooh, not right. Bad. Not bad. You're, you're maintaining it. You're maintaining it. See you, Frank. See you next week. See you. Bye-bye. Bye.